Okay. Oh, that guy's probably coming around on us. I hear something, maybe five. Oh, that was me. I ran to three just to cover him off, make sure. Like he was back. He was what back you're listening to is a little bit of Call of Duty. In this case, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 from last year. I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. One's like flanking. That was the freaking double kill of my life. Some guy behind the yeah, case is yeah. somebody get him. Oh, he's still back there. It's a first-person game, which means that the camera is through your character's eyes. So it's as if you are kind of looking out onto the battlefield and seeing whatever your fictional character plays. That's Jason Schreier, who covers the gaming industry for Bloomberg News. And it's a, it's a military shooter, essentially. And what that means is you're going around and you're shooting people uh, with fictional guns and fictional uh, characters and fictional settings. And um, these games, Call of Duty games, tend to have both a single-player and a multiplayer mode. In the single-player mode, the game is telling a story, usually some sort of um, military, jingoistic story about rah-rah, the army going into some various uh, uh, territories and saving the day. Um, and the multiplayer player, which is really the most popular part of Call of Duty, is you team up with your friends or you go online and you play against random people or with random people and you're essentially competing to see who is the best. And this has been going on for literally 20 years. The first version of Call of Duty was released back in 2003. The game has generated some 400 million lifetime unit sales. I asked Jason how much money it's made for the company that released it, Activision Blizzard bazillions of dollars. Activision doesn't tend to uh, share sales numbers for their games. They prefer talking about things like monthly active users, um, but we could certainly look at their annual revenues because they do have to share that as a publicly traded company, and they've just watched those numbers go up and up and up. Um, I believe it has hit almost $3 billion in revenue a year, just the Activision portion of the kind of the, the, the larger Activision Blizzard umbrella, and that is pretty much just Call of Duty. It's been a rocky road to get here. Microsoft, which makes the Xbox, faced opposition from the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and U.K. regulators, who worried that the merger would suppress competition. What if Microsoft made some of Activision's popular content exclusive? But for now, Jason says, people who play Call of Duty on a Sony PlayStation don't need to worry. Microsoft uh, has made it very clear that they have no intention of taking Call of Duty exclusive. They have no intention of taking Call of Duty over off of PlayStation. I don't think it would be beneficial to them. Um, the game makes so much money on PlayStation that they would really be shooting themselves in the foot. Still, mergers are not always smooth sailing, especially big ones. And then there are a lot of people, a lot of industry observers um, who look at this and say, hey, monopolies, consolidation, this has traditionally not been a great thing for a lot of industries. Uh, are there going to be some problems here? I mean, just look at what happened with um, Warner Brothers and AT&T and the, the kind of the fallout that's followed. I think there was a New York Times article talking about that as the most disastrous merger in recent history. So here's hoping we're not seeing similar articles about this one in the near future. But I think that alone has caused some trepidation among industry observers. Today on the show, Microsoft's mega deal has gone through. Is this big tech business as usual, or will gamers pay a price? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. 
I want to back up and lay out some of the basics of the Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal. $69 billion. I think if you are not someone who follows the video game industry or if you're not a gamer, the scope of this might not be as obvious to you. And I wonder why was Microsoft so interested in Activision? There are a couple of, I think, compelling parts of the business. So I mentioned Activision is 2 to $3 billion in revenue, just the Activision part. The entire business is closer to $8, 9000000000 billion of revenue a year. And the entire business is three components, essentially. There's Activision. Think of that as Call of Duty. Then you have two other components. You have Blizzard, which is um, the very popular company behind World of Warcraft and Overwatch and Diablo, which are all very big hit franchises that themselves are all worth quite a lot of money, um, especially World of Warcraft, which is essentially a money printer because it has millions of people paying some $15 a month to play it. Um, so that's just another, another solid part of that business. And then the third part, and people don't talk about this quite as much, but I think it's actually the most important part of this acquisition is a company called King, which is based in Sweden. And King is the maker of Candy Crush, which even if you don't play Call of Duty or World of Warcraft, you you might play some Candy Crush on your phone every once in a while. And that game is incredibly lucrative. That game has made many, many, many billions over the past uh, decade or so since it's come out. The deal was announced back in January of 2022. But even before then, Activision Blizzard had had a tumultuous few years. In the summer of 2021, news broke that the California government was suing Activision Blizzard over sexual misconduct and discrimination, and that was the first in a series of dominoes that fell over the course of that year. Um, Activision ousted Blizzard's president and began doing its own kind of firings and reformations. And then a big Wall Street Journal article hit later that year that uh, that basically threw some allegations at Bobby Kotick, who is the CEO of Activision Blizzard, said he was culpable said he knew uh, about a lot of these things before they were reported to the board, um, accused him of several misdeeds as well. One of the responses that I've seen, uh, especially from people who actually work at Activision Blizzard, is that a lot of them had lost faith in their CEO. They really just did not um, trust Bobby Kotick to govern the company moving forward, to lead them, to kind of oversee a culture that they were happy to work in. Outside the company, there were basically two big responses to the deal proposal. One from gamers who worried about what it might mean for the games they play and the systems they play on. And one from regulators who were worried about monopoly power. I mean, you have people who are um, concerned about the antitrust uh, uh, issues here and the consolidation of the industry and what that's ultimately going to do. Is that going to be a bad thing? Xbox has been snatching up lots and lots of other companies, too. Um, Microsoft bought a company called Bethesda in 2020 that was another one of the major game publishers. So now now Microsoft is, is like like uh, Thanos and Avengers is like collecting these, these infinity stones of game companies. <laughs> now they have two massive game publishers. And of course, Xbox is on its own a massive game publisher. So you can certainly see the concerns uh, about monopolies and antitrust violations there. Well, let's talk about the regulatory picture because the FTC and others said, whoa, 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 whoa. 
we have some concerns. And for a while, it seemed like the deal was not going to go through. Talk to me about what antitrust regulators were concerned about and how Microsoft seemed to have finessed that. A deal of this magnitude, just because of the nature of the deal and the money involved and the fact that both of these companies operate in dozens of countries, this had to be approved by pretty much every country that they do business in. And most of them just kind of rubber stamped it and said, okay, go go about your business. But there were two that really um, stood up and took issue with the deal. One was the UK and one was the US. And so over the course, in the, in the months following the deal's announcements, um, over the course of the next, I don't know, 18 months or so, both the US and the UK began fighting against it. And what the UK did was they have their kind of their regulatory board and they essentially just said, no, this can't go through. And then uh, Microsoft was able to convince them otherwise by negotiating a deal to offload the rights to a certain part of their business called cloud streaming to another company called Ubisoft, which essentially mollified the UK's concerns. On the FTC front, Lena Khan, who is the new-ish head of the FTC, started when Biden took office. Um, She has been very much like an advocate of breaking up tech companies and enforcing antitrust laws. Yeah, we've covered her a lot. She um, she has her her mission, and one of the Microsoft this this deal seemed like a perfect opportunity for her to do that, and so the FTC did pursue action against it. Um, what happened was over this summer, so about a year and a half after the deal was first announced. Um, Microsoft kind of played its hand and essentially to to kind of simplify the sequence of events here, they goaded the FTC into going to court on this expedited trial that was only a few days long and would essentially just kind of like set a ruling uh, as quickly as possible. And it was this five-day trial. It was kind of a mess for the FTC. They did not perform well, according to many observers, many people who watched the trial and uh, had some legal background to say, hey, this, this isn't, this isn't great. Um, And the judge ruled in Microsoft's favor, and that allowed the deal to go through. I'm curious about what we started with, you know, the sort of nod toward you can play Call of Duty on a PlayStation. You can play it, you know, not exclusively on an Xbox. Does that figure into this? That was a big part of the argument over um, whether this deal will be bad for customers ultimately, because what Xbox did with Bethesda, the company I mentioned earlier, yeah. they actually did make a lot of those games and their future games exclusive to the Xbox, to essentially depriving them from PlayStation users. And it's highly likely that Microsoft will do the same with some of the games they release under this new Activision Blizzard uh, division that they now own. But Call of Duty is another story. I mean, Call of Duty is too big. And in fact, Microsoft has another precedent that is worth looking at here, which is a game called Minecraft, which Microsoft bought um, in, I believe, 2014. And what they've done with Minecraft is really interesting because they bought that with no intention of making an exclusive. And in fact, they released that game on every platform and and keep it updated on every platform. It's on PlayStation, it's on Switch, it's on everything. Um, and so I think they, they were always signaling that they were going to take a similar approach with Call of Duty. But there's a wrinkle in this equation. Microsoft has a service launched in 2017 called Game Pass. You can think of it like Netflix for games. 
you as a customer pay $10 a month or whatever it is for access to this subscription program and you can play hundreds of games as much as you want if you have Xbox Game Pass. You can play pretty much any Microsoft game and then a whole bunch of other games that they've licensed out from third parties. And so part of this deal is going to mean putting Activision games on there. So that leads to a a bigger kind of existential question for PlayStation, which is, okay, a new Call of Duty game is coming out next November. If I am a PlayStation user, I have to spend $70 to get the new game. If I am an Xbox user, I only have to pay $10 for a subscription, and then I can get the new game right then and there. That's That's a huge, huge difference. And this is something that I think the FTC really failed to compellingly look at and prove. But even even if uh, even if it's not exclusive to Microsoft consoles, it's still essentially um, a way better value proposition on Xbox. And, and even if they don't do that sort of thing right away, uh, this is something to look at in the years to come. So let's think about this from the standpoint of a consumer. Like if you have always played. Activision Blizzard games on the PlayStation, what does this mean for you? Right now, it doesn't mean much. I mean, we're not talking about a ton of games in the first place. We're talking about maybe Overwatch, maybe Diablo, maybe Call of Duty, and all those games are still going to be on the PlayStation um, and still will continue to be, most likely, for the for the years to come. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when, say, Blizzard is ready to release its next game. Will they put that on PlayStation? Not clear. All we know for sure right now is that Microsoft is committed to release Call of Duty on PlayStation for the next 10 years, they signed an arrangement and they signed a deal with Sony, like um, ensuring that that was going to happen. So through 2033, um, Call of Duty will still be playable on PlayStation. But um, so, so Call of Duty definitely won't affect you too much if you're playing on PlayStation. But the precedent is that they keep things exclusive. The big Bethesda game of this year was a game called Starfield that came out last month. And that game was uh, originally planned to release on Xbox and PlayStation and PC. And then Microsoft bought them. And now it's only on Xbox and computers. Does does that mean that somewhere within Microsoft, someone's sitting there saying, everything goes on Game Pass and we just dominate this in the future? Yeah, I mean, that's that could certainly be part of it. And it's worth noting, I mean, a game can come out on Game Pass and also and still come to PlayStation. It's just such a more attractive proposition on Game and Pass. And so much cheaper. Right, and so much cheaper. But, I mean, right now, status quo, like even b- before Microsoft um, bought Activision, uh, you would still just have to pay $70 for their games on PlayStation. So even if Microsoft puts the same game on Game Pass but still releases it on PlayStation, you're just still paying the same amount you were before. Like, it doesn't really make a difference to you if you're a PlayStation user. So ultimately, I don't see it making too much of a difference, although that might change when Blizzard is ready to release its next game and Microsoft says, you know what? This is only coming to to Xbox and PC. We're not releasing this one on PlayStation. When we come back, can the gaming industry move beyond the console wars? Gaming has always generated a certain kind of division. Are you on Team PlayStation or Team Xbox? In part because the companies have encouraged this. The console wars go back to the 90s. But Jason says even the big companies are now realizing that this kind of thinking is a little silly. 
the interesting bit of history here is that for the past decade or so, PlayStation has completely dominated this. The the when it comes to console sales, um, the PlayStation Four and now the PlayStation Five have just completely walloped the Xbox equivalents. And there are a lot of reasons for that. First and foremost, because PlayStation has done a much better job building up this kind of in-house uh, suite of game studios that make games that are exclusively for PlayStation, like God of War and um, The Last of Us, and now. Spider-Man, there's a new Spider-Man game coming out that that uh, is a PlayStation 5 exclusive. So um, that's a big reason that the PlayStation has done so well. Microsoft, on the other hand, has said, you know what? We're not even going to be exclusive to Xbox with anything. We're going to release every single game on Xbox and on PC so people can play it on their computers too. They don't have to buy one of our, our consoles to play these games. So Two companies that, even though they're kind of their their rivals for sure, they're also operating in very different spaces. Um, also important to note here that. Uh when we talk about Xbox and PlayStation, we're talking about one company in Sony where uh, PlayStation is their biggest revenue driver. It's their most important aspect of their business, even though they also make um, other hardware and movies and, and all sorts of other stuff. PlayStation is a substantial part of their business, whereas Microsoft Xbox isn't like a huge part of their business. Right. They're Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, they're making a lot more money on Windows subscriptions and like all sorts of other stuff uh, that Xbox isn't as big of a concern for them. Not to say that it's not important, but it's not quite as substantial a part of their business. So it's it's we're talking about two very different kind of companies with very different priorities. That's the business side of it. The fan side of it, I mean, there's always going to be fan tribalism just because that's how gamers like to think about things. People like to, I mean, I, I, it's unfair to say gamers. I mean, sports fans are the same way. Anyone right. who's a fan of anything likes to be tribalistic in some form or another. Everyone wants to pick a team and root for their team to succeed. It's just kind of human nature to, to uh, want to be part of the winning group. So I don't see that ever going away, um, even when it's kind of irrational. Right. I mean, that's why there's this thing where it's like, it seems weird that consumers are psyched about a merger. Yeah, you you would never see that. You never see like pharmaceutical industry fans rooting for the the the, the merger of whatever Caremark, CVS, whatever. Um, yeah, that's not not a common thing in the M and A world. How many game releases tend to be exclusive to a certain platform? Not a lot. Um, maybe PlayStation maybe has a handful less than 10 per year that they either fund from outside parties, um, like Final Fantasy 16, which came out this year was a Square Enix game from Japan, but was, uh, but was exclusive to the PlayStation 5, um, at least for the time being, it will come to PC at some point in the near future. Um, and then Sony also has their new Spider-Man game that is exclusive to the PlayStation 5, but also will probably come to PC. Um, a lot of these companies, I mean, even Sony has been, Sony and Nintendo are really the two that are most committed to releasing exclusive games. And Sony has been walking back on that a little bit and doing kind of what is called timed exclusives, where they put out games on PlayStation for a little bit and then later release them on computers so more people can potentially buy them. Um 
yeah, it's not it's not a huge, huge part of the industry, although it is something that helps Sony sell consoles and helps Nintendo sell consoles. Microsoft, not so much, but because they don't sell that many consoles in the first place. And because, like I mentioned earlier, they don't actually put any games as Xbox only. They haven't in many, many years. All of their games are on Xbox and on computers. Um, so you can play them whether you're an Xbox owner or you just play games on on your laptop or whatever. I, I want to kind of explore the not monopoly in a legalistic sense, but but the idea that you have a few big players eating one another and what that might mean for consumers down the road. You know, if you use the analogy of, say, the streaming industry, a lot of platforms, a lot of tumult consumers feeling like, ah, none of this is really for me, it, it does make me wonder if we're seeing something similar in the gaming industry. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, there are a few different ways of looking at it. I think one key difference between the gaming industry and the streaming world and that kind of traditional entertainment model is that there's still a lot of gatekeepers in traditional entertainment um, in the streaming world. If I were to go out and shoot a film with my iPhone, I would not be able to get it on Netflix if I wanted to. Whereas in the video game world, it's actually pretty simple, pretty easy to come up with your own game as kind of a hobbyist and get it in front like get it on a platform release it on steam for example which is the <laughs> massive yeah. pc computer store um that's not to say you'll get eyeballs that that's a very different type of challenge is getting people to pay attention but um a lot of people out there could just download some basic game making tools and release a game on their own and um, I mean, if you win the lottery ticket, you might also like reach a massive audience. I mean, there's a guy named Eric Barone, who I actually profiled in my first book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. And he uh, spent five years making a game alone in his attic by himself. And it was a game called Stardew Valley. And it went on to sell millions and millions of copies. So once in a while, you win the lottery there. Um, and I think that is an important difference because what it means is that you're always going to have options. But yeah, yeah, I mean, as far as like job stability and um, the kind of uh, uh, other problems that a monopoly might cause, um, prices going up, competition going down, that sort of stuff, I mean, certainly might might hurt. And then another thing is if you are out there, if you're an indie game studio and you want to try to find a game publisher, you want to find someone who might actually fund your game and help you market it and stuff. And so maybe you're kind of in between the one one person hobbyist and the the 4,000 person company, you're kind of in the middle of that. Um, this might really hurt you because it just gives you one fewer option of a potential game publisher that you could work with um, if it's all just getting swallowed up by Xbox. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, which is like, oh, it, could could we be here 10 years from now saying, oh, my God, you know, and then it ruined everything. We really could be. I mean, it's it's kind of a it's an unprecedented thing. We haven't really seen anything like this happen in the games industry where this one company is swallowing up so many other companies. And by the way, I mentioned Bethesda, and obviously we're yeah. talking about Activision, but Xbox has also bought like a couple dozen other game studios, smaller game studios over the past few years. Um, one of their goals with this whole kind of endeavor has been to uh, compete with Sony in terms of, like I mentioned earlier, Sony has this 
big, substantial um, kind of stable of game studios that makes a lot of cool stuff and is just really talented. And Xbox has been trying to compete with that by going out and buying a bunch of other game studios to add to their own fold. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely raises a lot of questions. Jason Trier, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason Schreier covers the video game industry for Bloomberg. And that is it for the show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell, Anna Phillips, and Patrick Fort. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. It's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.